God, our Father, Lord, we honor you this day. We bless you and we praise your holy name. God, we thank you that you have created everything for your glory, for your own purpose. God, for our benefit and blessing. We thank you that you sit on a throne in heaven, that you hold the whole universe in your hands, and that, God, you are in control. We praise you and we bless you. And we thank you for this great truth. Oh, Lord, our life is in your hands. And our prosperity is in your hands. God, our health, our suffering, whatever we face, our joys, our sorrows, God, it's all in your hands. And we praise you. We thank you for who you are. And we are reminded today. That, Lord, your arm is not too short to save. And that your arms are not too weak to uphold us and to carry us, to lift us out of the pit, out of the mire of sin and death. But that, Lord, you have sent our Lord Jesus to rescue us from the dominion of darkness and transfer us into your kingdom of light. We thank you for the glory and the power that you have given to us through the gospel. I pray this day, God, that our eyes would be opened anew to what you have granted to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that you are to us. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before I get started, I want to just address an issue that came up uh, with a conversation I had with somebody, and it kind of enlightened me to something that maybe I do sometimes that I don't intend to do, And uh, but you know, sometimes when we're trying to communicate, we uh, frequently communicate things we're not intending to communicate. So I wanted to just bring up this issue. A lot of times I'm commenting on various portions of scriptures or truths or whatever, and I make references to denominational systems, okay? Like, for example, I might refer to a Baptist, or I might refer to a Presbyterian, or a Presbyterian church, or a Pentecostal, or a Methodist, or many others. At times... I frequently make reference to things like that and or churches like that. At times, I am actually uh, being critical of a certain, uh, uh, a certain kind of a way that Christianity is practiced or a certain doctrine that's being held forth or put forth. And when I do that, I may make reference to one of these denominations. Okay? So I want to communicate to you that <clears throat> I in no way mean to demean one of these denominations or their system, but specifically and, and more uh, perfectly, the doctrine that I might be highlighting or criticizing at the time. Are you with me? So I want to give you a very specific example. Uh, maybe about six or eight weeks ago, I was talking about being saved, and I was talking about the idea of responding to an altar call, and I was talking about this in light of the doctrine of eternal security. Okay, And I was explaining that in some denominations, this is actually called uh, once saved, always saved. 
okay, which means something very specific in certain denominational systems. And although that truth is biblical, if you understand it in its biblical context, okay, the way that it gets put forth in some specific denominations is that if you do the certain thing that they expect of you in salvation, which is, for instance, responding to an altar call or praying the sinner's prayer or doing some specific work that is related to, if you will, being saved, then they will say that once that happened to you, you're saved eternally regardless of how you live your life or regardless of what kind of fruits you bear or regardless of whether or not uh, you know, there's a real transformation that takes place in your life. And, and so as I was describing that, I, I mentioned, you know, being saved in a little Baptist church uh, 16 years ago, and I kind of said it in a mocking tone. And, and I, I really, I need to apologize for that. I really shouldn't mock those kinds of things. But the last thing in the world I was trying to communicate was that somehow you don't get saved in a Baptist church by responding to the gospel and responding to an altar call. Okay? Certainly that's a way that God saves people. In fact, there are probably many here that were saved that way or in a similar way. Okay? So I just want to be sure that I clarify that for you, that I don't in in any way intend to mock these denominational systems or, or whatsoever. What we're talking about here is God's truth and how it applies to our lives as Christians, whether we're a Baptist or a Pentecostal or a Methodist or a Nazarene or whatever we are. Okay? And, and uh, again, as far as I'm concerned, these systems, as long as they will, uh, uphold and abide by an orthodox confession of faith, they, they are, if you will, systems that produce true Christians. Are you with me? Is that clear? Did I confuse anybody? No. Okay, good. I just wanted to be sure and state that because, you know, hey, the last thing I want to do is, is be offensive in some way to the Lord's church or the Lord's people. Okay? All right, let's see. Having said that, <clears throat> we have been in a series talking about the gospel. And uh, we've been talking all about the gospel in its many forms. We started out talking about the very simple message of the gospel, which has four main parts that we outlined. Somebody tell me what they are. God. God, man, Christ response. The very most basic elements of the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't have these elements in your gospel, you don't have the whole gospel. Amen? Amen? And so, if you will... We, we started out talking about those things and explaining them, and then we went into the whole concept of the gospel can be rather complex, and we went in and talked about the kingdom of God and the rule of God and the gospel of the kingdom of God and the second coming of Christ and, and all of these things that accompany the gospel. And then uh, we kind of went from there and, and began to focus on uh, the lordship of Christ, and we talked about how the gospel proclaims Jesus Christ as Lord. And that he is, a, uh, he is our master, and we are his slaves, as it puts us in a biblical context. And that he's calling us to obey his commandments and to follow his lordship and to surrender our life to his righteous rule. Amen? And, of course, we talked about that at length. And as a part of that, we talked about the nature of true saving faith. You know, it's not just about believing uh, certain things that happened to a certain man back in history, Right? But it's a matter of being born again by the Holy Spirit and having your life life transformed by God himself from the inside out. 
Amen? And so we talked about the nature of true saving faith. And we went on from there to really begin to focus on the heart of the gospel. And we defined uh, uh, the heart of the gospel as the doctrine of justification. Uh, justification by faith in Christ. Amen? And so for the last seven weeks, we talked about justification. And we went all through the doctrine of justification, talked about what it was, how it happened, looked at it in the light of the Protestant Reformation and how it was highlighted in the controversies in the Reformation. And uh, if you will, that's what birthed the entire Protestant movement in the Western civilization, which is now spread to all the nations in the world for the most part. And um, uh, we've looked at the gospel in those many contexts. As we've talked a lot about the gospel, I have frequently referred to different kinds of gospel errors, like the one I just described to you a few minutes ago. Um, And I haven't really gone into detail on those. I hope to be able to do that. Um, But one of the things I frequently refer to is, uh, if you will, kind of a prosperity gospel, or a gospel that simply holds out the promises, the good promises of God, to the exclusion of the warnings of the gospel, right? And I've made that very clear. And I've, I've made it very clear that the gospel is not just a promise of blessing from God, but it's also a warning from God that if you don't obey it, you're going to be destroyed by God. And that actually it's the gospel that rescues us from God. And God is one to be rescued from. Amen? Because when you're found in sin and death, you are at enmity with God. You're an enemy of God and you're under his wrath. And you need to be saved. Amen? And that's what the gospel does. It holds out salvation from God's wrath. In the gospel and through the gospel, God is saving us from himself. Because of our sin. Because the position that our sin has put us in between us and God, of which every single one of us is personally responsible. Amen? Amen. Okay, well, so as I've kind of corrected that gospel error of only holding out the promises of God without speaking about sin and repentance and the cross and, and blood and suffering and a suffering Messiah and the atonement that Christ wrought, um, I, I also want to bring some real balance to that starting this morning by telling you that there is a lot of truth in some of the things that prosperity gospel teachers are preaching. And if you will, they're giving you one part of the gospel. And in so doing, they've done what we call what? Reductionism. You remember that? They've reduced the gospel only to its good promises. Okay? And so they don't really have a gospel if they do that because they're redefining the gospel to be only a certain aspect of what it really is. Are you with me? Okay, so... What I want to do this morning is affirm what many of the biblical promises are and kind of get to the major categories of it because really the the gospel promises us amazing blessings. I mean, more than than we could categorize here in many, many weeks, okay? It's just amazing the the staggering promises that are made in in Scripture that come to us through the gospel and, and, and through being reconciled to God and saved from our sins. But if you will, I kind of want to go over that because here's what's important. We can preach the gospel in that way as long as we bring the balance of how we come to God by what means, right? 
Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and when we are reconciled to God through the gospel this way, right, then we become recipients of all the promises that God has made in Christ. Are you with me? And so, if you will, the gospel holds out all those promises. And so it's not incorrect to tell somebody, if you come to Christ, he's going to fix your life. That's a true statement. Quite frankly, he's going to fix your life. In fact, he's going to fix your life so perfectly, he's going to give you an immortal and imperishable body one day that is never capable of sinning again. And you'll live in in eternal bliss in heaven with God forever. Can the life be fixed any better than that? And is that the promise of God to all those who believe? It is. So, in fact, those are true statements to make, and I think we should be making them. I think we should be including those in our gospel proclamation. However, that's not the main issue that's at stake when we're trying to communicate the gospel to somebody. The main issue is is that they've been estranged from God. And the reason their life is falling apart (laughs) is because they don't live under the, the, the blessing of God. They live under God's curse. Because they've been, they have violated and transgressed God's law, and now they're reaping the, the consequences of that, which is sin and death and suffering and all the things that are related to it. Amen? So the good news is, is that if we are reconciled to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, then these benefits become ours, not the least of which is being saved from sin and death and given eternal life, Okay, which really is the main category of salvation. So the thing that happened in the garden when Adam and Eve fell, and they were plunged, they plunged the whole creation into bondage to decay and into death and into to sin and death, that is corrected through the cross, which really is pictured there as the tree of life. Christ is the tree of life. Are you with me? And if you eat from that tree, you will live forever. Amen? And so in the garden we see these symbols... And in Christ, we see them all fulfilled. Okay? So, of course, that's the main category of of the gospel benefit is eternal life. But what is eternal life? Well, it can be defined in many ways. Like, for instance, Pastor Tim's been taking us through John 17. And there it says that eternal life is to know God and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent. And so as we come to know God and we come to possess the knowledge of God, eternal life is equal to that. It's the experience of the life of God and the soul of man as we come to know God and we are reconciled back to him, no longer estranged to him, but in reconciliation, having our relationship restored. And as that happens, then we begin to experience the the benefit and the blessing of God. But what is the benefit and the blessing of God? What is it? That's what I want to talk to you about. And if you will, a lot of these things are very closely related in Scripture. And as you start, as I was going through the study, I'm I'm confounded by the way that God weaves these truths through Scripture. And, you know, he refers to it in one way in a certain context, and then in another way, he's talking about the very same thing, but relating it to something entirely different. And if you will, like, for instance, the church has analogies in the Scripture of one of a body, right? We're the body of Christ, and we're all members of it, right? And Christ is the, the head of the body, right? Well, then in another analogy, you know, the, 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 the church is the bride of Christ, right? Or in another analogy, there's an analogy of the family, right? And we're the children of God, right? And these things are all woven through Scripture 
and shown to us in these many different ways. Okay? Well, so if you will, let's talk about gospel promises, a hope, and a future. Did I confuse anybody there? Any questions? Okay. The gospel promises amazing benefits to those who obey it. God is the source of life and blessing. Mankind has willfully broken fellowship with God and in his sin is estranged from God and cut off from his life and blessing. In his sin, mankind is dying and separated from God. So often we find in scripture the free offer to come and receive the blessing of God. God calls estranged sinners, all estranged sinners, to turn from their sin and to seek him for life and for blessing. God is seen in scripture as inviting poor sinners to come to him in repentance and receive once again the blessing and benefit of a right relationship with him. For example, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 55, we have the great announcement, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Excuse me. I forgot to turn on the tape. (laughs) So... What's happened in the garden is man has been estranged from God. Well, what does that mean, he's estranged? Well, he's dying. He's been cut off from life. He's in death. Look around at the pain and the mourning and the dying that's going on in our world. That's the consequence of estrangement from God. Okay? And, and that's what's happened to man in the garden. And that's what God corrected at the cross and through the gospel. This is what he's inviting all mankind to receive. Come and be healed. Come to the waters and drink freely. Right? I'm reminded also of Isaiah 1, where uh, God is calling to the nation of Israel, and he's calling them to repent. And uh, I'm going to turn there. I'm going to read. I want you to see these invitations from God specifically in the book of Isaiah, but in many other places. Surely the gospel itself is this call from God to, to be reconciled to him, right? And uh, chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1, and verse 18, the Lord, or let's go back to verse uh, uh, 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. 
Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And there you see the flavor of the gospel. God is inviting men through repentance to come to him and to be healed and to be cleansed and to receive his blessing. He says, you'll eat the fat of the land, the best of the land, he says, right? Come to me and I'll bless you. Come to me, you'll no longer be cut off from my blessing, but I'll pour out my blessing on you, right? And, and, and God is frequently seen giving these invitations to us. But this invitation from God is tied to repentance from sin. Because you see, sin is what got us in this mess to begin with. And it was a willful thing that we did when we went and we transgressed against the law of God. And it wasn't just Adam and Eve. It was you and me. Because even though sin came to us through them, the rest of the, of the verse, you know, Romans 5.12, right? The rest of the verse says, but all sinned, right? And we're all personally responsible for what we've done. We've done it willfully. Are you with me? And so what God is saying is, convert, change, change your mind, turn from sin and turn to me. Turn away from that which kills and slays and destroys and turn to me, the source of your life and your blessing. That's what God is saying continually through these invitations. And that's why the first word of the gospel is repent. We've got to turn from our sin to embrace Christ. The reason why we're in this mess is because of our sin. Okay? So here's salvation 101. Turn away from your sin and turn to Christ to be saved. Amen? And so we call that repentance. And these invitations by God are frequently tied to repentance. This picture is one of mankind turning from the evil of his sin, which brings death, and returning to God who will have compassion on him and give him life. See, here's the thing. When we turn away from sin and death, we receive life and blessing. Okay? The the ultimate portrait of this contrast is seen in heaven and hell. That in heaven... There's no more dying or crying or pain and the old order of things has passed away and we live in eternal glory and bliss forever and ever and ever. And in hell, there's no good thing in that place, not one good thing at all in that place for the good presence of God to bless is no longer there. And so Jesus calls it outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. He describes it as eternal punishment. And Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1 that it's being shut out from the presence of God. And he describes it there as eternal destruction. Okay? That's the contrast between death and life. That's the contrast between being estranged from God in sin and being reconciled to God in life and in blessing. Okay? And, and that's why there's only two kinds of people in the world. There's those who've been born again by the Holy Spirit, and their hope is Christ and heaven. And there's those who have not. And family, they have no hope. The, the only thing that they are waiting is the grave. They're abiding in death now, and it's only going to come to a, a greater fulfillment if they continue to willfully reject Christ and to willfully reject God. Okay, And so in the gospel, we're pleading with men, be reconciled to God. 
Right? Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Right? And so this is important to understand about the gospel, but it's always tied to repentance. And God is, is in it, is offering life. He's offering blessing. He's offering to correct our problems. Not only that, the blessings are beyond our comprehension. They're beyond our wildest imagination in, in the scope of what they really are. And, and um, it's a glorious thing to consider. Listen, God freely offers forgiveness and restoration for those who will come to him in repentance. And we are told to seek him and to call upon him. I'm thinking all the way back in the pages of Genesis when, when Adam and Eve fell. And then, you know, their sons were, were caught in sin. And, and uh, Cain, you know, killed his brother Abel, you know. And it was right there in that text of Scripture where the Scripture says it was at that time that men began to call on the name of the Lord. And they were, of course, Abel was given a sacrifice to God. And that's why his brother Cain killed him, because he was jealous of Abel's relationship to God. And he could see the life and the blessing of God being poured out on Abel, and he was jealous. And so he killed him, killed his brother. That was the first episode of persecution, I imagine. Right? But, uh, you know, the point is is that <clears throat> uh, God is offering that, that, that forgiveness and that restoration for those who will call upon his name. For those who will seek him, right? Call unto me, he says, Jeremiah 33, and I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Isaiah, ho, come to the waters, right? And then in the gospel, it's just reverberated over and over again. The New Testament is filled with this invitation. Come to God, right? Jesus shows up. He says, come to me, all ye who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls, right? He says, come to me. He says, I'm humble in heart. Right? I'm going to receive you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to meet your needs. You're going to find rest. Amen? And so God is inviting men to be saved. And he, like he says in Isaiah 55, there, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let me tell you something. God will never turn away a sincere call to him for help. This is all we need to do. We're in our plight. Cry out to God. He will help you. He promises to help you. The Bible says over and over again, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You don't call on God for rescue and not get it. But the call has to be sincere. And let me tell you, it is he who searches hearts and minds. And he knows what's going on inside that heart. But when that heart surrenders, and says, okay, God, uncle. <laughs> right? God, please help me. I'm a desperate sinner. Right? And when we truly have a broken and a contrite heart, and we're truly looking to God for healing, pow, open up the floodgates of blessing and life. And that's what happens. I don't know about you, but that's what happened to me when I got saved. As a matter of fact, I do know about you. <laughs> and, and if you've been saved, you are right now, even now, experiencing that blessing. And that thing just drives you on to eternal life. In spite of all your failures. Amen? Amen. You with me? I'm astounded at the grace and the blessing of God. He says, let the wicked forsake his way. 
and let the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. You see the invitation of God? Let the wicked man do what? Return. Let him not be like Adam was when he sinned, but let him do what? Return. Don't go hide in the bushes with guilty Adam. Come back to God. That's the picture, right? Return to the Lord. For he will abundantly pardon. God will forgive your sin. Just seek him while he can be found. Come to him right now. The doors of salvation are wide open. Amen? Now is the day of salvation, says Paul, right? And so the gospel announces reconciliation to God and offers to us the astounding benefits of a restored relationship and fellowship with him. Indeed, through our Lord Jesus Christ, all the promises which God has made become ours. And I grabbed this little thing out of context, of course, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, but this is what it says and what it means when it's in its context. For as many as may be the promises of God, in him they are yes. Wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. What's Paul saying? He's saying that in Christ, all the promises of God are ours. They're in Paul's language, yes and amen. What he means is that we partake of them and we uh, glorify God in the midst of that partaking. Amen. Now, how many promises is all the promises? Every one of them. You with me? Get out your pencil. You're going to need actually two or three and a sharpener because you're going to wear that dude out. You with me? There's a lot of promises in the Word of God. Right? And, and here's what Paul is saying. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. <clears throat> All the good promises of God in the entire Bible, both Old and New Testaments, are said to be ours in Christ Jesus the Lord. These benefits are many and diverse, so much so that they are hard to categorize. The scripture is filled with metaphors of life and blessing, which are said to be the possession of those who have been reconciled to God through Christ. But chief among all these blessings is the fact that we have been restored in our relationship to God, and we have received him as our exceeding great reward. Now, what am I saying? Here's what I'm saying. Jesus is the gospel. The person of Christ who is God is the chief benefit that's held out in the gospel so that we are said to receive him and to possess him. He becomes our possession. He is therefore our God and we are his people. He's our God. You understand? He's personal. He's ours. We possess him and he possesses us. Amen? And this is the chief benefit. Abraham said, uh, God said to Abraham, that I will be your exceeding great reward. And you see, that's the great benefit that Abraham had. I mean, hey, Abraham had lots of blessings, but none of them compared to God. Amen? What in the created world could even compare to the smallest tassel on the edge of God's garment? Are you with me? I mean, he's the eternal God. He's the Almighty. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He's the creator of the entire universe. How much more valuable is he than everything he's created? Which he did was simply with a spoken word. Amen? You with me? 
And so we're said to receive him. So complete is the cleansing from sin that we receive in salvation that we are now said to be the very temple of God and that he has come to live and reside inside of our being. Think about what I'm saying. I'm saying the chief benefit in the gospel is that we receive God himself. And when the Bible describes it to us, it describes it in terms of the Old Testament temple. And it says that God comes to live inside of us. That God comes to live inside of our being so that now man becomes the dwelling place of God. Not only that, but the sacred dwelling place of God wherein God is worshipped and glorified. You see the picture of the temple? The temple's where people go to meet with God and to worship God. Are you with me? And God says, I'm going to come and live in that place. Right? I will come and live among them and dwell with them. And I shall be their God, and they shall be my people. Amen? You with me? Like it says in Romans 8, 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Okay, so what's the point? Well, the point is is that we're in the Spirit. Right? If what? If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. You see, that's what happens when we believe. When we believe, or or shall I say, that's why we believe. Because the Spirit of God comes to live in us through regeneration. You with me? I'm careful to point that out. I'll write it down. Because I think it's a very important point to understand. Regeneration precedes faith. That means that faith is given to us in regeneration. And with that faith, we employ it and are converted. With that faith, we employ it and are justified and converted. Are you with me? And so that uh, it's important to understand this truth. However, the, the, the main part of what regeneration is, is what? If any man be in Christ, he is a? A new creation. The Spirit of God comes into man and recreates him by implanting his very nature inside our being. Are you with me? That's what regeneration is. And, and so uh, what happens is the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us. And this is the chief and primary blessing that's held out in the gospel. Of which when you were a sinner in the darkness of your sin, you had no concept of what a blessing that was. You, you hardly knew what it, all you knew was that, yeah, it wasn't right between you and God, and your life was a train wreck, right? And, and all you knew is you were in desperate, desperation, you needed help, you, you were without hope. You, you, your, your heart and your soul were empty, and you needed to be saved, and you couldn't even articulate that, right? And when God opened your eyes, man, pow, on came the light, Right? And you knew what your sin was. You knew you were estranged from God. And you knew God was inviting you to be saved. And you knew that the door was Christ. Amen. And you knew that the cross was your hope. And there you saw at the cross reconciliation with God. And there there you came and you believed. Amen. Amen. But none of that happened until God turned on the light. Amen. Which is what happens every single time we get on our knees and we pray for God to save somebody. Right? I mean, when you're praying for God to save somebody, what are you, what are you asking Him to do? Yeah, turn on the light. <laughs> turn on the light. Right? 
because you've been talking to him, and man, it just she's like, you know, bouncing off a, a rubber ball or something. Everything you tell them, they're like, they just can't see, they can't understand. They're thinking, man, you're crazy, you're weird, you're 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 some kind of fanatic, you know. <laughs> why it's important to tell them the bad news first. Yeah, right, exactly. They don't, they don't know. They don't know what sin is. Exactly. They don't know that they're estranged from God. Mm-hmm. There's exactly. one evangelist, he tells a story uh, about he, when he first started out, he told the guy that uh, Christ died for you. Mm-hmm. And the guy's response was, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, what does that mean? You know? Yeah. And, of course, in some cases, and I think you agree, Jeff, that in our postmodern age, yeah, we're postmodern here. Yeah. <laughs> People don't even know who God is or, or, or what God is. Are you with me? And so they don't even necessarily have a monotheistic worldview. And so we got to get them straight on that first so they can even understand what sin is to understand that they are under the wrath of this holy God. Right? And then maybe, maybe, just maybe, if God turns the light on, right, they're going to see and understand. But it's through that ministry of reconciliation as we're bringing the gospel. What gospel? God, man, Christ, response. That that light comes on. And they see, oh, I have this fundamental need. I need to be reconciled to God. Oh, the only way for that to happen is through an incarnate God who died on a cross. Right? Which is why the Hindus and the Buddhas and all the rest of them can't help you. They don't have propitiation. They don't have expiation and imputation. Because they don't have the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There's only one Lamb who died. And there's only one way to come to the Lamb. It's through repentance and faith. The way he defines it. Right? He is the Word. The communication of God to us. And God sent his Son into the world to save the world. He's the Savior of the world. You with me? Okay, so then, or uh, 2 Corinthians 6.16 would talk about us being the temple of God in this way. It says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, Paul says again, we are the temple of God. We're seen as that sacred place of God where God is worshipped and where God is at. Except in biblical terms, he is in us. Christ is in us. We are the very dwelling place of God. I want to ask you a question. If holy God can come to live inside us, how complete do you suppose the cleansing from sin has been? Are you with me? I mean, we were once dead in our transgressions and sins. Get the picture? Dead body, right? Decay, stench. By now, Lord, he stinketh. You with me? Right, didn't even touch him, right? And, And here's the deal. Holy God, perfect, pure, purity, God doesn't touch death. Death is an abomination to God. He's the God of life. Are you with me? So if God comes to live inside man, how perfect do you think that cleansing from death is? And and as we've said a million times, the atonement is sufficient. What Christ has done is a perfect work. Amen? So much so has he cleansed this sinner that God can come to live inside my being. 
Are you with me? Inside my soul. You understand? Even though I live in a body of sin still, which is going to perish one day and be transformed, right? God has come to live inside my being. So that if, if, my, um, if my spirit is separated from my body, are you with me? When I die, what happens? To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord, right? Of course, I'm getting into a controversy there. But I'm going to steer away because that's a long rabbit trail. But, but the fact of the matter is, God comes to live inside our being, okay? So that even when we die, the body goes to the grave, right? But the person, the soul of the person goes to the presence of God until when? Until when? The resurrection. Right. It's question number 39 in the category. <laughs> we just went over it last Tuesday. Right? So, okay. So, the body goes in the grave. The soul goes to be with the Lord until the resurrection, at which time the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be with the Lord forever. Amen? And this perishable will put on the imperishable. And this mortal will put on the immortality. And we shall all be changed, Paul says to the brethren. Amen? You with me? And so, okay. What glorious words. What he says here. We shall be his people. Now here's what I want you to think about. The chief blessing we get in the gospel, God comes to live inside of us by his spirit and transform our nature so that we're a new creation in Christ. Okay? And we are said to be the very dwelling place of God. And he says of this, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Like I was telling you, he's, he's our God. He's my God. Jesus is my God. He's my reward. I thank him for it all the time. Because, you know, it's just, it's me and Jesus, man. He's with me everywhere I go. You know? And my Savior, I'm happy and blessed. I lay my head down on the pillow at night and I just thank God because He's my God. Because He's the God and He's my God. Are you with me? I don't know about you, but to me, those are glorious thoughts. Imagine this. A people belonging to God. Now I'm not saying that He is my God, but I am His people. Now that right there is an amazing promise. Think about that. For God's own possession. Peter says we are people for God's own possession. Now, it is one thing for us to make a commitment to God, for Him to be our God. But, it is entirely another thing for God to make a commitment to us that we should be His people. Now think about that. God has said, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now we belong to God. Now tell me. Tell me, if God is for us, who can be against us? You with me? You understand what it means to be God's people? Now we're talking about jealous possession here on his part. And his jealousy is perfect. It's not an evil jealousy like we have. It's a perfect jealousy. It's a good jealousy. It's the goodness of God being jealous for his own. Amen? You with me? God keeps his promises. 
More than that, he is the greatest power and authority in the universe, and he has the ability to make good on every promise he has made. Think about this. They shall be my people. God is promising that we will be his people. What do you suppose is going to be the outcome for us? What do you suppose is going to be the destiny of us if we are God's people? Well, you say, look at Israel. Man, it's a train wreck. Right? Hang on to your hats, folks. There's a future for Israel. Because they are God's people. Okay? And of course, that's another rabbit trail. We can chase that, and we should chase that, because it needs to be heralded. And it's part of the gospel, quite frankly. But the fact of the matter is, is that through Christ and through the gospel, we become the very dwelling place of God, and we are said to be his people. Okay? And all of the promises, the Bible says, that God has made are ours in Christ. And I'm trying to get this point across. It's God who's making these promises. Are you with me? I'm telling you, it's far beyond our ability to even try to comprehend. Are you with me? But we're going we're gonna to look at what the Bible has to say about it. So profound is this presence of God dwelling with us and making us his people that he makes promises to us that are astounding in their scope, such as Romans 8.28, which says, And we know, I want you to get this, And we know, And we know that God, God, get this, causes, God causes, what does this word speak of? What word in theology does this word speak of? Not quite. Providence. God causes by a mighty providence. What? All things to work together, he says, for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, let me ask you a question. How many things are all things? All things. things. Every single one of them. Now, it doesn't say all good things. And it doesn't say all bad things. It says all things, which includes what? Good things and bad things. But he's working those good things and those bad things for what? For the good, right, of those who are called, who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Are you with me? You know who those are? Those are God's people. Now think about this promise. God is promising that in Christ, every single thing in your life, he is going to work for your ultimate good. I mean, can the promises get any better than that? You understand what I'm saying? I mean, ultimately, we're going to go over what that really means and where that's going, right? But the point is, is that, family, God can't make a greater promise than that. He's saying he's going to ultimately work it all for your good. So much so that it's going to well up into eternal life. And you're going to be found partakers of the divine nature in the kingdom of heaven. Glorious, awesome promises from God. The scope of that promise is amazing. Now, I'm not fibbing, okay? This is my favorite book outside of the Bible. 
Okay? It's, it's Thomas Watson, All Things for Good. This is a treatise on Romans 8, 28 through 30. And I, I'm telling you, it, I'm telling you, if you're discouraged in your faith, you need to get this book. If you are happy and blessed in Jesus, you need to get this book. This, this book is, this brother is cataloging this promise from God. And he's describing all the blessings and benefits that come out of this promise. It's amazing. It's amazing. Little thin little thing. It's just filled with encouragement. Filled with hope. Filled with faith. Okay? So, consider the scope of this promise from God. That he's going to work everything for our blessing. Alright? That is amazing. This is an amazing promise from God. Nothing in the life of a Christian believer will ever turn out ultimately for harm. But every single thing that happens in our life, both good things and bad things, God causes them to work ultimately for our good. And some of you are saying, that can't be true. You don't know what I'm going through. Right? And I understand. I understand. Death and sin and the suffering that is in this world is is unimaginable. It can be very, very difficult. It can be very, very dark. It can be very, very discouraging. Okay? But if you're in Christ, God is promising to take the worst things that happen to the saints and work them for their good. And, and, and if you need a biblical example of that, the life of Job, I mean, your circumstance, let me tell you, it don't compare to his. And that doesn't mean yours isn't bad. I know we face difficult things in our life, very, very difficult things hurtful things that hurt us deeply to our core. Amen? But I want to tell you, you trust in God and you will not be disappointed. And he has made that promise again and again and again. Okay? And this is where faith comes in, family. we got to trust him. we got to rely upon him. You know what faith is, right? I've told you. Trust in and rely upon. Right? Trust in the Lord, he says, with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will he will make your path straight amen glorious what do you got to do well you got to trust him you know you're going down the road there's all these bumps man all these things start falling apart life's a train wreck amen it ain't getting any better my back hurts right my hair's falling out I need a bigger shirt. <laughs> I'm not the strapping young buck I used to be. Although my wife still thinks I am. <laughs> I'm teasing. But you, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, you know, we're on this course of life, man, and we're aging, and the, the whole place is just falling apart. We look at the world, we say, Good night, Jesus, come, please. The place is falling apart. Right? Amen? You with me? Trust me, we haven't seen the half of it. Right? You know that, you know that uh, time of the Great Tribulation and the, the day of the Lord's wrath, you know, is said to be a time of trouble such as not happened from the beginning of nations until that time, nor ever to be again. For those days will be cut short for the sake of the elect. But if those days were not cut short, no flesh would survive. Yeah, that's what God says about that time. I don't know about you, man, but I don't want to see it. 
<laughs> but you know what? Hey, my life's in the hands of God. Amen. My life's in the hands of God, and, and it doesn't matter what happens to me. God's going to work it for my good. The day I die, I pass into glory. Amen. Amen. And in the meantime, there's people dying. And God's given me the message of reconciliation. What am I wasting my time for? You with me? I have the words of life. Shall I hoard them? Or shall I share them? Shall I share this great blessing I have? Or shall I be selfish and keep it only for me? You with me? I know it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. But you know what? It's the loving thing to do, family. People need to know. They need to know about their sin. And they need to know what God's promising to do if they'll simply turn to him and trust him. Amen? You with me? Okay, so then, God is making this great promise. He, he, and, and he says that all things, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. The 17th century Puritan pastor Thomas Watson writes of this verse, and he says, He who loves God and is called according to his purpose may rest assured that everything in the world shall be for his good. Why should a Christian destroy himself? Why should he kill himself with care when all things shall sweetly concur, yea, conspire for his good? The result of the text is this. All the various dealings of God with his children do by a special providence turn to their good. As Psalm 25.10 says, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant. You understand? Now how many paths are all the paths? All of them. All the paths of the Lord are what? Mercy and truth to those who keep his covenant. You know what that means, right? To those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you with me? It is an astounding promise indeed. Surely the Lord is with us to care for us and to help us in all our struggles. In fact, the Lord has promised to deliver us out of all the afflictions that we face. As he says in Psalm 34:19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. All of them. You understand? doesn't mean he takes the suffering away necessarily but he delivers you through it and in it and ultimately out of it amen, amen. I mean we have hope family amen. I mean if we're dying in a prison right and we're near death we have hope what is this life right what is it what is it look here one, one little blip right here okay I'm going to write that can you see that can y'all see that little dot on the board? It's too big. Can you see that? Okay, I just want to give you this little example, okay? That right there represents time. You know how much time that is? Your life. This is your life. A little dot on the board, okay? And here's eternity, right? Right? Now, take that line and run, okay, to the sun. Okay, when you get there, calculate how little that little dot is, and you will not be talking about the first one billionth of eternity in heaven. Are you with me? Eternity is a long time, family. In fact, time doesn't even 
do us any justice trying to talk about what eternity is. Okay? But I want to tell you, this little life right here, Paul says, of this life, he says, of this life, Therefore we do not lose heart, 2 Corinthians 4.16. But though our outward man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction. See this life right here? Momentary light affliction, right? Is what? Achieving for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Right? You understand? This is a momentary light affliction. Be of good hope. Be of good courage, Christian. No matter what you face, let me tell you, it's, it's a momentary light affliction, and, and the weight of glory is far beyond all comparison. It's not even worth trying to think, the suffering is so intense here, God, heaven better be good. <laughs> Are you with me? It's far beyond all comparison. Paul says in Romans 8, he says, he says, our present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Are you with me? Let me tell you, God is going to make good on that promise. You trust him. You obey him. You follow him. And let me tell you something. He will be your God and you will be his people. Are you with me? Let's pray. God, I I know these promises are hard for us earthly people to believe. And I pray that you would give us faith. That God, in the midst of the trials that we face, and we look around and there's people hurting, we're hurting. God, our loved ones are hurting. There's so much death and sin and problems and suffering in the world. And I just pray that you would encourage us in our faith, that you would comfort us and console us and fill us with the hope that is held out in the gospel. I pray as we consider and we look at some of these promises, God, over the next couple of weeks, that you would just... Uh, just write them and impress them on our hearts and minds that, Father, we might go out and we might communicate this message of glory and good news that you have promised to us in Christ. I pray, God, that you would help us to see the great and precious and magnificent promises that you have given us and that they would be a great treasure to us, God. Open our eyes anew to see these things in the Scripture, I pray. We love you and we honor you because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen. Thank you.